Hello, I'm John Barnes. Welcome to the How Might We podcast. So the aim of this podcast is to have longer, more solution-based conversations about complex topics and problems. In the coming weeks, uh, we'll be discussing neuroleadership, distributed organizations, money, anarchism in Syria, and much, much more. Um, today, perhaps, we, do, we discuss one of those sort of keystone complex topics, which is education. Um, so I'm speaking today with my very good friend, Mar- Marcelo Valenci. Uh, Marcelo's the founder of Ecovia, which is basically a village that he built in the jungle in Costa Rica. Based on both commercial and sort of cooperative mindsets, a really remarkable blend. Um, it's a wonderful place for children to grow up in, I can attest to that. Marcelo is also, more importantly, for today's conversation, the founder of Casa Sula, a democratic school nearby Ecovia. So I, I should point out that what you're going to hear in this conversation is quite an impressive amount of confirmation bias, um, particularly on my side. What it lacks in me questioning Marcelo's view of the world, I think it more than makes up for in how radical and effective the methods discussed here really are. Um, so the confirmation bias on my behalf really feels quite difficult to avoid and then it comes from having lived in Ecovia for five months um, and with my, my seven-year-old boy go to Casa Sula for that time. At this point I have to say it was nothing short of a transformative experience for our family and for Iva um, so I really can't speak highly enough of what Marcelo's managed to achieve there. I should add from my perspective that following my book Democracy Squared, seeing children essentially learn how to cooperate and work in a democracy made me understand far better the ironies of the world of today, and that we want democracy but are brought up in autocracy um, in classrooms, that we want autonomous adults but we prevent children from having that autonomy until very late in life. Um, But perhaps the thing that stood out most to me in this conversation with Marcelo is that I now understand quite quite clearly that Casa Sula and Marcelo's intention is to build just really emotionally resilient children, or rather emotionally resilient adults. So it's not just about getting people jobs or learning skills. Their psychological well-being is really seen as a precursor to that. As a metaphor, you could say that like a child's emotional algorithm needs to be running without bugs for all the fancy apps that we typically value, um, like work and maths and jobs and other stuff for them to actually work and my conversation with Marcelo today starts a bit slow but please listen through as Marcelo's story not just as an educational pioneer but also as a social entrepreneur is really remarkable you also noticed I think that I try to deconstruct problems and add some theory behind what Marcelo is doing having been there to do my own research I know what's behind it um I think you'll find, however, that Marcelo doesn't really bite on those points. And knowing him, I think it's simply because that this this method of operating is such common sense to him. It's so heavily ingrained in him that he doesn't necessarily know what he knows, or at least I don't think he feels compelled to deconstruct it. So cynics among listeners may find this quite frustrating. Uh, so there might be an opportunity for a podcast episode exploring this in more depth. Um, So whilst the conversation is largely philosophical and practical without having much of a middling sort of theoretical layer, I'd ask you to just suspend judgment in the knowledge that that layer really is there um, and and you'll find me trying to point that out 
Um, you'll hear some theory, namely about developmental stages and how deeply that should impact the design of a child's um, learning environment. So with only two hours, there's lots Marcelo and I didn't cover. For instance, the actual physical space at Casasula is designed in a really smart way that, that truly nurtures a child's autonomy. Uh, they also run parenting workshops, which I can honestly say have changed my perspective on human beings. And as quite a recent parent, um, I'm, I'm, I feel, I consider myself blessed to have, have had that help. A note, a note I'd also like to make is that sometimes this topic is really confronting and provocative to some people. Talking about children not going to school or not being taught to read or write seems to trigger some quite deeply seated beliefs that we've inherited. Um, so I'd like to caveat some of this by saying that I don't think Marcelo and I are advocating for copy and pasting his story to every single school in the world or child on the planet. The aim here is simply to share one successful story in the hope that it inspires others. You might also hear Marcelo and I talk about traditional schools in particularly harsh and scathing language. Um, this is a part which causes me to conflict quite often with people. And I'd like to make it crystal clear that there's absolutely no judgment of individual people here. We're not judging parents or teachers particularly. I know we both have utmost reverence for these for these roles, and we ourselves have hoped quite fast to acknowledge our own flaws and how we're massive works in progress, really. Um, but what, what we are perhaps intolerant of is many of the elements of the industrial education system, which we see as, I think, doing things to children and shaping them according to what a government believes they need to become rather than letting them grow from the inside out to manifest in it express their potential as individuals. So please, if you find yourself feeling triggered um, by this conversation, try to discern between these things. Our critique is about a faceless uh, and dominant system. It's not a critique of individuals. Um, and I think that's a really important distinction to make in order to really benefit from a lot of the wisdom that I think Marcelo offers us in this conversation. Finally, just a bit of housekeeping. So before we start the episode, I'd love to ask for your support for the podcast, which for now you can just simply do by subscribing to it in your podcast app. Um, you should find it on iTunes, on SoundCloud. I think it's on, on Stitcher and perhaps Overcast as well. So please subscribe. Um, if you've enjoyed um, the previous episode, please share it with your friends. Um, I'd also love your feedback and ideas. Um, you can send that john at flux.am, that's j-o-n at f-l-u-x dot a-m. Um, and I'm going to be asking for your input a lot more. Um, soon, soon you should even have a Trello board of the, um, of the upcoming speakers and ideas for speakers. So I'd love that kind of um, inclusion with, with listeners of this podcast. Um, and if you're looking for any more details, you'll, you'll find a, hopefully a, an updated version on my website, that's johnbarnes.me, J-O-N-B-A-R-N-E-S.me. Anyway, I hope you enjoy listening to my conversation with my very good friend, Marcelo Valenci, which I've entitled, How Might We Help Children to Grow Wise? Hey Marcelo, thanks for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. 
it's not every day I think I'm gonna have uh, someone in the jungle building a school join me on my podcast so I'm thrilled to have you with us thanks so much my honor <laughs> so um I mean like I say it's not it's not a common uh thing so maybe maybe before we go into the crux of this um as you know I'm incredibly passionate about education and about what you're doing over there but before we get into the the meat of a subject that I think means quite a lot to quite a lot of people why don't can you just take us and take our listeners through your background and who you are a little bit hopefully that will set the context for us to to go into this a bit more sure um I think uh um, I'm a dreamer, as uh, many many of the people probably listening to this podcast, and the, a dreamer that wasn't happy uh, with the way things are. Um, I I come I grew up in a big city. I was born in Argentina in Buenos Aires. And I was sent to a traditional school. And I hated every single day that I had to wake up in the morning and go <laughs> go to school. And, and having to be sitting, sitting down, memorizing, repeating, and been taught by many people that they don't even like what they were doing and and passing all their frustrations and all their traumas into little kids and that's a you know that that didn't seem right to be sitting down and for so many hours and you know when you when you wanted to do something else and mm. so it was a you know i i was going with so much frustration and a, that you know and and even like many years ago the bullying existed and you know like sometimes if you think differently or do things differently it's like you start getting bullied by by other kids mm. and and even by the teachers many times they start making fun of of you for being tall or short or fat or that you have a funny funny thing so it's a you know, before I had kids, I always said, if I ever had kids, I would never send them to a traditional school. And right. I wouldn't do, like, I didn't want to do the same to them. And so I, I went on a journey before when I finished uh, high school. I, I went on a journey, I traveled. I travel around the world and to try to find out like who I really was, what's my purpose, what do I want to do in life. And part of that journey, um, I had the privilege uh, to see the beauty in the world 
and also mm. like the problems the things that we we are doing to our planet to our surroundings to ourselves and also seeing people doing very innovative stuff and creating solutions so that that opened up uh, the possibility to see okay if i don't like the way things are they don't have to be like this forever i have the I have the opportunity to make something different. So I arrived to Costa Rica about 20 years ago with a backpack and a lot of dreams. <laughs> and <laughs> part of, uh, I, I fell in love with the country. It was a love, love at first sight. I like so many things uh, from the weather, the people, um, the, they have many innovative policies that really resonated with me and attract me from conservation. Um, almost 50% of the country between uh, national parks, reserves and private uh, preservation efforts. So about 50% of the country is preserved. And so that, mm. that creates a lot of, um, you know, lot of nature, places where you can connect with nature all around the country. And it, it creates a very special energy. And not only, um, not only that, I mean, Costa Rica since 19, 1948 doesn't have an army. So that, that was something that, you know, I never seen before anywhere else where, you know, when your kids are born that they would never be soldiers unless they move somewhere else and decide to join an army. But, um, and all that money that was spent on military, suddenly got investing in health and education and you get a wonderful human beings that you can even if you go to very rural poor areas you can have very profound and interesting conversations with many of the people so it's a, it's a country that really like you know the weather I, I love I don't like cold so for me it was just perfect to be in the tropics and wear shorts and t-shirts all day and i started in in a journey of you know first it was um, experiencing how how to live in connection with nature coming from a big city i never had that experience and then i uh, i arrived to a place called punta mona and i learned how you can not only being in connection with nature but you can start producing your own food and that gives you a sense of totally independence when you're not depending on the system and I had so little those days and I was so happy and so fulfilled and you know wake up every day be on the beach and with nature all around and it was a wonderful experience to learn about permaculture 
and how you can grow your food, how you can create your own systems to be self, self-fulfilled. So in that moment, I, I said, wow, I would love to create a community um, whenever, like for, for myself, for, with friends around, and that my kids grow in an environment like this. This was way before I, I had kids. Uh, but I started dreaming about how the community that I want them to grow up with would be like. And so it was a, it was a journey and a learning curve. I learned about permaculture. I learned about uh, development and a lot of tools that I've been getting from different places that finally, and I know so like uh, when we, I met my wife in Panama as I was working in a project there as a project manager. And when I proposed to her and invite her to travel around the world for one year. So part of this, this, uh, we bought a round the world ticket and we visit a lot of different countries and a lot of different communities all, are, all around the world. And part of this learning was to see what the communities were doing, what worked, what didn't work. And most of the examples that I've seen, they, you know, they try to get out of the system and a lot of them are very rustic or very hippie that you can go you can go and experience to be off the grid somewhere and it can be fun for a weekend but when you think about living there permanently with kids and everything it, get, it gets more complicated and also a lot of people when i mean that getting out outside the system uh, I I mean that they don't have any connection with the outside world. They don't have internet. They have their own uh, economy. So I think in order to make a, a real change and a lasting change, we need to be able to know how we can infiltrate the system and create a change from the inside. So when when I created Ecovilla, that is uh, the community where I live with my family, uh, with 45 other families from 28, 29 different countries. It's, um, it is a condominium. Condominium here means that you own your lot and uh, you can go to a bank and ask for a mortgage you can inherit it, you can sell it, you can rent it, it's your property. And we share 70% of the land as communal areas. And part of, part of that as well, is a, it's a process of the decision-making that in many of the communities was one of the biggest challenges because all the decisions needed to be consensus. And by trying to create consensus, they create a lot of separations because you cannot agree on everything 100% between all the people. And until some of the communities... And yeah, I think, I think often in consensus, 
are often in consensus situations. I mean, the definition of consensus is that we all agree on it, but because the, the decision quite often has been watered down so much, in a way you could argue that everyone is disagreeing in a consensus situation and there's extra frustration from the fact that it was probably quite slow to make that decision. So it, it sounds like that's what you saw in these intentional communities before perhaps. Yes. And I know you are, you are, this, uh, this is your area of expertise and I think it's super interesting, like the voting process and everything. But, you know, in condominium, it's a, it's a system that's been around for a while and people are very familiar. And uh, most of the decisions are very independent, but between, like, uh, without wanting it, the community was created and it was created with a principle of love. Nobody was forced into it. We were a bunch of strangers, most of the people. And we get to know each other and interact with each other and suddenly something magical started happening. And when we started moving here, um, we wanted to have a way to educate our kids. You know, we, we had suddenly a lot of young families that we also wanted, not, not only wanted uh, to live in a different way, work from home. We, most of the people here in Nicovia, we work from, from the house. Uh, we have a very good internet connection and that gave us the possibility for all the people that we work remotely to be able to connect to the outside with fiber optics and, and be able to work. So part of uh, creating this uh, village was how we would educate our kids. And we had all these different ideas and what we could do and how we could do it. And I had no idea about anything I didn't know anything about education and as I said the only thing I knew is I hated my school but not so we tried between the parents to figure out a way of um, of uh, creating a school so we made uh, two small classrooms and we divided like kindergarten and primary primary school and we started with eight nine kids uh, that was about almost five years ago that we started uh, the school inside of Ecovia. And that started bringing a lot, um, lot of problems inside of the community because it was a newly formed community, like uh, not many families living there at the time. And some some people we wanted to have the school inside some others that they didn't have kids or grandkids they didn't want to have suddenly kids even coming from outside but mostly it was about the payment paying for a building that they wouldn't use or they didn't need so the old old it started to be like a a separation between the younger younger families and the old older people so it was a, a 
a big learning curve. Um, and we didn't know, you know, we didn't know much about um, methodologies. One says, you know, Montessori is the best. The other one says, no, Waldorf is the best. The other one said, let's do and schooling no let's do this or let's do that and everyone had a different opinion what we should do and how we should do it and too many cooks in the kitchen sometimes it brings <laughs> the problems in the moment when you try to mm. accomplish something so we had a uh, one couple uh, he's uh, from switzerland and she's from guatemala that they live in Ecovilla. And before they had kids, um, they went backpacking in, in South America. And part of their journey, it took them to Ecuador. And they visited a, they visited a place called a, a school that was called the Pestalozzi. The Pestalozzi was founded by a, a, a couple that she, um, she was from Germany and he's from Switzerland. So this Swiss-German couple, they, went, they moved to Ecuador and they started a school uh, about 30, 35 years ago. And it started as a Montessori and then they started doing a lot of studies and research and, and creating their own curriculum and it, they started as a very small school that it started growing and they 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 were having at any given time two three four hundred kids in the school and the, the school she, no, uh, I didn't realize it was wrote, that big yes it was a, a very big school and there were a lot of people coming from Europe, especially for the school. I'm talking in the 70s, 80s, 90s. So over time, it started growing. And so this couple, um, they hire and train local, local teachers uh, from Ecuador. And they put together something really really amazing like um, and so uh, this uh, this couple that 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 visit this school they were so impressed by it that they said if we ever had kids um, we would love them to study in a place like this so they approached me and they said marcelo like we visit this place it's and it sounds like when they they told me like i started having like a feeling you know when you get something that resonates with you and everything and i said please send me their contact so i had a call with them and we invite them to come to ecovilla uh, to give us an advice of, on how we can create the school and they came and you know, you know, pretty much they said, you know, you guys have no idea what you're doing in a very polite way, but that was the message. <laughs> and, and I said, yeah, I know we have no idea and we are trying to figure <laughs> it out. And, 
And I, I started asking them what, what, where they were in life because the Pestalozzi, the owners, the Swiss-German couple, the, uh, the wife passed away and the husband, he was very old and he said, you know, we already educated many generations. We had enough of uh, their biggest challenge was not educating their kids. Their biggest challenge was to deal with the parents and their expectations. So he was tired of that and everything and says, you know, we, we've done our job. So now let's move from a school to a community. And he turned the, the school into this community that their main income was a school. So suddenly all the people that live in the community didn't have the possibility to have an income. So the community wasn't very successful. And when they closed the school, these teachers that were there for 30 plus years working in the school, suddenly like they had to go out and started consulting as they did with us on how to create a school, how to do homeschooling or unschooling, and how to uh, share the, their knowledge with more people. They were going to South America, to Europe, different places that they were calling them. So th these uh, three amazing Equatorians that they had all this experience, they came to Ecovia, to Costa Rica, and I started talking to them and seeing where, where they were in life. And pretty much um, they, they share that they have all this, um, you know, they, they go and they travel to Europe, they travel to Argentina, Brazil, here and there. And all the families, they said, you know, everything you, te you tell us, it sounds amazing. But where can we see it working? And because the Pestalozzi doesn't exist anymore as a school, there is no, there was no example that they can show them or guide them to. So pretty much uh, they wanted to create a, an example. They wanted to create a school. So I said, you guys want to create a school and we want to make a school. Why don't we partner up? Um, so I, I started finding the right location for, for this school. We, we were very lucky that there was a project very close to Ecovilla that the owner was um, trying to, trying to uh, uh, convince me to do the same thing I did in Ecovilla in his property. The difference is like Ecovia is 17 hectares, about uh, 50 acres. And this other property is two, 320 hectares. That's about seven, 800 acres. Just that too big. It was too big and a beautiful property with, uh, it has primary forest in part of it. It has ocean views. It has an amazing, the same amazing river. And it was a petting zoo. So they have all this infrastructure. They invested $25 million. And in two years, they went out of business. And they had all these amazing buildings and infrastructure that was going to waste. 
because it was abandoned for several years. So I said, let's start creating this, the school here. And if we get enough response and enough people that want to join, then later on we can talk about doing more ecovillas on, on your property. So he gave us mm. the, the place for free. We invested the money to make it beautiful. We renovated, painted, and in two, three months, we switched from the school inside of Ecovia to this other school. And we had like, at that point, around 12, 14 kids. That was two and a half years ago. And the school keeps growing at the moment. We have around 60, 60 kids, ages from three years old to 17 is the oldest at the moment. So it's a kindergarten, mm -hmm. primary, and, and high school all together. And it is divided in to two semilleros. Semilleros means seedlings. Um, seedlings, Casa Sula, it's in a native language called Bribri, and it means the spirit guardian of the seed. So pretty much is how to create the environment and how to preserve that each of these seeds that is, are these kids, how they can have the right soil, the right amount of water, the right amount of, so, of sun. <laughs> so, so it's still permaculture. You're, you're, in Ecovia, you're, you're gardening the land, and in, in Casa Sula, you're, the, the children are the seeds that you're growing. Exactly. That's, that's what we are doing. I mean, and we have three amazing gardeners or shamans or whatever you want to call them, that they create a safe space for them to learn, to learn from the inside out. We usually learn from the outside in, and mm. this is the other way. So around. actually, that's, that's an interesting metaphor, the way you're, or more than a metaphor, actually, having been there in person, uh, uh, I can say that it's, it's a, a real lived experience for more people to have. I'm interested in this way that you talk where you say um, from the outside in or from the inside out, because I think those are two, I think they're complementary, but they're often seen as conflicting um, modes within education. So we often, I think socially uh, in, in like popular culture, focus on the outside in thing. We focus on things like reading, maths, Nowadays, anyone who talks about the future of education seem, seems to be talking about coding. Um, and very rarely do I hear much talk about education, certainly after a really young age, where we're focusing on the child first. And this seems to tie with your initial story. It sounds to me like the root of Casasuda is your own school experience, where you mentioned bullying, you, you mentioned the various ways in which you seem to be, be kind of. Um, I guess like emotionally uh, hurt or maybe I'm, I'm not expressing it quite right. Uh, but can you talk more about that problem that you're trying, like what's the real problem that Casasula is trying to solve here? It sounds like it's an inside 
inside out problem. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it is um, like, let me, let me go back a little bit. Pretty much, um, you know, a few, a few months ago, um, I'm like around two, I would say two and a half years ago, I had a meeting um, with the municipality, the local government here in, in San Mateo. And th there is a plan to, to make, a, to make a, um, the international airport, the main airport of the country, it will be made in a town close by that is called Orotina. So they, they, they call us to all the business people, developers uh, into the municipality to let us know what their plan was and, and everything. And they, they had, they invite the director of the high school in San Mateo. And, and she, she stood up and says, it is a pleasure for me to be here with you. And I'm gonna request to have a meeting meeting one-on-one -on -one with you to let me know how can we train the kids to be good employees for you. And, and she did with all like all her best intention and all her heart on how she can create the opportunity to give these kids uh, a job in the future. But Pretty much that's, you know, since the industrial revolution, that's pretty much what the education system does, is how can we create good workers? Not entrepreneurs, not mm. people that can think for themselves, that they can solve problems and, you know, like create a new reality. It's all about how, how can we, uh, make things uh, differently if we keep educating the people the same way for two, three hundred years. And you could see it, uh, how much resemblance there is to a factory. When you have the bell, you have the authority, you sit and shut up and do the same thing over and over and over again and not thinking the repetitive repetitive jobs one and again and again and so you know when you want to create um, something different and you want people that are change makers and that they know who they are what they want in life that they can make decisions from a very young age and you can create you know, when, when you give them the possibility, if you have a plant and you give them the possibility to grow and give them all the ingredients that are there, I mean, you, could, you can mimic it in, in a greenhouse or you could do, see it in nature, how if a plant has a, all the things that needs it usually grows and it grows strong and well and 
when they have everything they need to for their development. Mm. But, and it strikes me that the the goal of the education system, if it is, it's predominantly economical, like you're saying, and like the, this well-intended um, headmistress was saying that you know the, the main intention of it is to create jobs. Um, but what what I find fascinating about it is that even if that were an interesting goal, like I'm not I'm not sure it's an interesting goal. But even if it was an interesting goal, uh, the way in which it's done doesn't reach that goal because because we're not in the industrial revolution anymore. So so it doesn't even meet intended goal which might even be the wrong goal you know what i mean like yeah you're not nurturing the skills for the 21st century there yeah and and at the end of the day it's if you don't have people that you know they can they can innovate and create different things then they, you would not have jobs anyway so at the end they will go and and start doing jobs that they hate and you know they start having all the problems when there is a, an insatisfaction of uh, drugs and alcohol mm. and many other addiction problems but when you have kids that you know they have the opportunity to choose from a very young age first of all being in a um, casa sula is based on prepare environments. Prepare environments means that the kids they have the opportunity to choose whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. And they have in this uh, environment everything that they need for them to learn all the things that the curriculum requires and much more. So there, there are stations where they can learn math, there are stations where they can learn reading and writing and geography and history and a, a science lab and a kitchen and wood shop, a, a computer lab with 3D printers that for the older, older kids, they have power tools, they have um, areas where they can play dolls and invite their friends for tea and what that's for the youngest ones but they have all these things to develop social skills and all the things they need in life but in a very safe environment a very relaxing environment where the main rule was at the beginning, the only rule they had is that no bullying, no physical or verbal aggression is allowed at all. All the rest of the rules, they, they were made by the kids. So when they make their own rules, they, they will not break it. And not only they will not break it, they will enforce mm -hmm. it. So every Monday morning, uh, when they arrive to Sula, kids uh, seven, seven and older, they have an assembly. In this assembly, they choose a president that directs the meeting and they choose a secretary that takes notes. This is all run and done by the kids. 
the adults that are the guides in the environment, they participate, but they are not the, the authority. So this is, the, this is the part in this story where, uh, in my experience, telling uh, our experience at Casa Sula, uh, this is the part where one of two things can happen with the people I tell the story to. One is that someone's eyes open, they giggle, and they find this amazing. The other one is someone is puzzled and think, what, this sounds like total chaos. You're letting, you're letting the kids run the school. Um, and yet, as you say, it, it really works. Like it's, it's an amazing experience. Um, what I'd like to do, I'm, I'm gonna suggest here, I, wanted to, I want people to fully understand and imagine themselves what Casasuda is like. So I'd love us to go into the, the kind of detail you're going to there with the assembly and the kids council. I want people to fully get that. But first, just because I think there might be some listeners who might not necessarily see that there's need for this yet, right? Like we might, I think we might be giving a solution when people don't necessarily see that there's a need. And so I'd just like us to spend a little bit more time fleshing that out. The way, the way I think we can do that is, these, is this model you gave us earlier, this inside in or, or inside out, outside in. So I just want to go over that uh, a few more minutes. Is that okay? Sure. Yeah. So let, let me just set the frame there. The, the bit I want to say is that, the, so that there's the things that people learn, right? Like reading, math, coding, uh, like, like we said. Um, and... We're gonna show, I guess, through, through Castilla how you can learn all of those things in a totally different way. But the part of schooling that is, or the social problems that this should be solving are not just economical ones. So there's, there's this idea that we live in a more creative, or a creative economy, a knowledge economy, that we perhaps didn't have in the industrial evolu uh, revolution when, when didactic education became so mainstream. And so it's not fit for that purposes. But one of the biggest um, uh, problems, uh, pandemics, I should say, that we have in the world today is mental health, suicide, all sorts of those kind of problems. And it strikes me that educational systems are, are totally ill-equipped to help children flourish psychologically, um, which, of course, uh, would have a huge impact in the economy anyway. Um, Right, so, so can you tell me a little bit more about the problems uh, on both of those sides, the outside problems and the inside problems that you think Casa Sula can solve? Or this kind of model, I'm not just saying Sula, I'm saying, saying these new educational models um, can solve if you were to see them sort of widespread in society. Yeah, I mean, um, for me it's... Uh like heartbreaking when I, I heard so many cases on so many kids uh, that they commit suicides nowadays because they've been, they've been bullied or they've been thinking that they are not good enough or that they are not, they, they suck at everything they do or that they didn't approve their exam, or they lost the year because their grades were not good mm -hmm. enough. And all the shame around 
all these things that you have to prove to someone to their standards that uh, you are doing things and you know we are we are all very different it is a, there is a very funny picture that i've seen um, several times where they have an elephant a fish a monkey uh, and a lion and they were going to do a competition who can climb the tree faster or better so it is like you know we all have very different skills and compare all those different animals um, it's a it's not a fair competition and and mm. pretty much a you know, our education system right now, we hear all around that it's, it's in crisis. And not only that it's in crisis, if you hear the results right now, the, the, the ones who get the better grades in uh, competitions, international competitions or something, it's, it's a... A school systems very similar to Sula, like in countries like uh, Finland, for example, that's the education system that it's a public education system. It's not like it's, it's an alternative education and they get the best scores in every competition they have as education. And that's mainly because of the freedom they give, right? I, I don't know if it's because of the freedom but because the kids they they learn how to learn pretty much and mm. when they learn how to learn and they are passionate about whatever subject they are learning they are not afraid of, of a, they love what they are doing so it's very different when you are forced to do something because you have to prove yourself to someone else and because you are doing it because that's your passion and that's what you love to do. Well, yeah, it seems like fear or love as the two motivators. The current school system is, you know, the, I'm talking about the, the dominant like didactic pedagogy is, is premised on fear, fear that you will fail, feel that you will be compared to a peer, which is what grading does. Um, and I hear from most cynical people I speak to, they say, oh, but if you let the kids do whatever they want, they'll just do nothing, um, which, which just totally ignores um, the thing that actually happens in majority cases, which is the kids find out what they really love doing, and then they work so hard. I mean, you can, or play hard, whatever you want to call it, but there's huge motivation from children in these, in these situations, right? Yeah, I mean, it is... It is a, you know, it's a, I don't think you can convince anyone that about anything at the end of the day. It's all about experiences and awareness and the things that they resonate with them or not. Like they, there are some people that today they still going and eating fast food. They go to McDonald's, Burger King, Kentucky Fried Chicken, and they, they have that every single day. Uh, as their meals 
So you could go and tell them, this is crap. This is not good for you or something. And, but they might feel, oh, but this is delicious. I like it and I will keep having it. So it's, be your guest. And, and until they have a real health issue, when they, when they realize, no, this is not what I want for my life. This is not what I want for my family. That's when they can make the change. But you cannot enforce it until they really see that there is something wrong. And many times, you know, by creating spaces like Sula, not only people, they have an aha moment. When people come to Ecovia, when they go to Sula or something, many people, they said, you know, I always dreamed that something like this was possible, but I thought it was only my dreams. It wasn't something that could be possible, that you can live differently, that you can do things in another way. So it is, um, it, it is a life, life-changing for many families in many ways. But, and not, only, not only for the kid that goes to Sula, for the family, the way that uh, Sula works with the family as a whole on how, how to be in a system like this and how to accompany the kids to try, thrive, not only in Sula, but in their houses, that it's where a lot of the magic and time that they spend and the relationship inside the family and how to deal with limits, with tantrums, with different things that <laughs> go through life. As we know, like none of the kids come with a manual and this is how you should parent or i i can firsthand um agree with this as somebody who is new to parenting uh <laughs> i i can absolutely say that not only has it been transformative for either but um it's been like a bit of a mirror for me me and gabs uh as you know as to as to how it works at home and i think one thing that strikes me if i if i think back to the la the last um last hour or so we've been chatting is that this is holistic in the sense that there is like Sula is a school let's say since that's the that's the common word it looks nothing like a school but it, it people people learn things like reading writing maths etc then you have the community of Ecovia which feels like the um, like learning to live with others is a skill that uh, if we all learnt the, wor the world would look dramatically different. And then learning to parent, maybe that's too coarse a way of saying it, but the way Sula works with the parents, I think is, uh, is maybe something that, that would change the world as well. So you have this kind of more holistic, I guess, uh, approach, I think, through those three, those three elements. I mean, we, we, the only reference that we have as parenting, it is you know, what we got as a kid from mom, dad, grandparents, aunts, whoever, nannies, whoever we grow up with. That's a way that we tend to do the same thing eh? because that's the only model we have and that's the only way we can repeat and 
So depending on how your childhood was, many times uh, <laughs> you, you tend to repeat that, like it or not. So many times I find myself saying phrases that I, I say, wow, that, that's exactly what my mom used to say to me or, or that's exactly what my dad used to <laughs> say to me. But unconsciously, we just keep repeating. And unless we really work and make a change, we will go down the same path. So suddenly when you start uh, being aware of the repercussions that you can have, you know, many times little kids make uh, ugly drawings and they come and show it to you and you said, oh, that's so beautiful. And and they keep repeating the same drawing over and over again. So they come and they get your approval and your love. And suddenly like they grow and they keep doing that crappy drawing or they show that same drawing to the teacher and they, the teacher says, oh, that's, that's really ugly. So they suddenly they don't want to paint anymore that thing that they like it to do or something. They don't do it anymore because they got a negative feedback or they said, I suck at that or I'm not good at this or I cannot do this. And if you think about it, how many times and how many um, blockages we have with, if, if it's with math, it's like, oh, you, you're not good at math. You, you are stupid or you are, you are smart, but you're not good at this. Or so many times we get these labels and we believe that that's who we are and that those limitations, they accompany us many times throughout many, many years. And there are yes. fears that then we have to work out later on if we want to improve or things that we blocked from our life completely and never explore. So when you have the possibility of people to mirror all these things and saying, you know, when you tell your kid um, uh, he will be doing the things he does because he's seeking your approval, your attention, not because he, that's what he really wants to do. When, when the kid is relaxed and they can do something and they are not putting grades and saying you're good, bad, you are a 10, you are a five, you're a six, or you are a one, depending on the opinion of the person watching it, then the, the people do whatever they want to do without the fear of being criticized or labeled or be wrong or be right. So the guides in Sula are there to accompany them to thrive in whatever they are doing. They are all the time um, accompanying them in their development. And part of their development is at home with the parents and teaching us many tools or things that we can tell tell our kids or not tell our kids for them to keep thriving in, in life. Uh, so pretty much, um, you know, I, I feel that 
going back to your question, like uh, the traditional education system is a system that is designed on giving you information. Much of that information that is given is, uh, is not updated. And many of those things are obsolete. And if we think about like how many things we learn in school that today they don't even exist. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, if I, if I think as an example, recently I, I came across Ivor's old school report um, from, from before when he was in didactic school. And um, it was a book of his handwriting. And there were a few of, you know, notes, feedback from the teacher that, that I think are simply pointless, which were basically judging whether his handwriting was like the handwriting that they want him to have. So there's this idea that the handwriting should look exactly like this. Um, and there are just like several reasons why that makes no sense. Well, one is that um, we all end up with really different handwriting anyway. So trying to make us all have the hand, same handwriting when, when we're kids makes little to no sense. Um, the second one is that like we use computers and keyboards far more than we do handwriting anyway. So the amount of time spent on it makes no sense. And then one of the, uh, we'll go into this in a bit, you know, there's some uh, like the old child development work from Piaget basically says that kids are only really ready for those abstract concepts at 10 anyway. So, <laughs> so it, it's just, a, it feels like a triple fail yeah. in, in that instance. Yeah. I mean, if, if I think, uh, if I, have to make an analogy it's it's like you know remember uh, probably around 10 10 years ago when the first smartphones came and they have you know probably um, 20 megabytes of memory and so the traditional school system is like we were those phones with the 20 megabytes and that uh, you can, you would put the information and one or two or five days later, that information goes away because it's just an abstract concept in the blackboard that you have to memorize and repeat for the test. But you didn't touch it, many of those concepts, you never learned them or understood the why behind it. It's because the teacher said, and because you wanted to pass the exam, so you study for the test, and then it's bye-bye and gone. Yeah, I heard um, the John Holt, who created, I think created the term unschooling. I've read one of his books recently, and it, it says something like, um, people who are good at school are the people who manage to forget everything they learn after the exam. That's the difference between good or bad at school. If you forgot before or after the exam is, the, is, the, is his definition. So yeah, the, the, way, the way I see it uh, in Casa Sula, it's, you know, by doing all these experiences and having all these aha moments where they are connecting neurons and really understanding or something, it's like they are creating the most powerful container or phone, in this case, with the same analogy, with hundreds mm. of, uh, of, of 
of gigabytes and of information that they can store and understand because they, they are doing the experience. So they are developing the best hardware to be able to, when I said this, learn how to learn. So it is from the inside out. That's exactly what I mean by creating this super powerful container that later on, whatever information they, they want to learn, they can get, they can process it and understand it in no time. And they know how to get it and what they could do to make it, to make it happen. So that, that's, that's a big difference that I see. And they are so secure about themselves and what they could do, that they could do anything they want, pretty much. I'd say one of the big um, things that I noticed about the children when I went there is how they spoke to me as an adult. Uh, I don't think I'd ever had, I'd ever met children who spoke to me with that confidence. I would imagine that some adults who aren't used to uh, spending time with children who are schooled alternatively, democratically, whatever, is that actually they would think that those kids are somehow arrogant because they're speaking their mind or, or they're saying what they truly think, you know? Like it's a different rapport uh, I've found. Yeah, I bet it is. Um, my son, uh, my oldest son, he's nine year old. Uh, he, he was invited by a neighbor to go to a, a soccer, soccer game in, in town the other day. And he came back from the soccer game and asked my wife, Mom, can I, can I, get a, can I use your phone? And I said, sure. And he, she called, he called uh, Monica, the friend that took him to soccer, and says, hi, Mon. Uh, can you give me the phone number of the teacher, please? And she gave him the phone number. He wrote it down. And he called the, the soccer teacher. And he says, hi, profe. Uh, this is Noah. Uh, I went to your, your class today. And I'm very interested to go back. And I want to know what days are the soccer practices, what time, and wow. how much it is. So he was, you know, he was in shock. Like the teacher was like, who? A kid calling. He's always used to parents organizing all the things. But when the kids know what they want and how they want to do it. So he came, came to us and said, Mom, Dad, I would like to go to soccer practices Tuesday and Thursday from this time to this time. And this is how much it costs a month. Would you take me there? And I'm sure if... If we told oh him God. no, he would have found a way to get there anyway. But when you have when you have kids that they know what they want and what they're it, it is they're they are very empowered. And that's the story that I wanted to share with you. Um, in the Pestalozzi, mm -hmm. there was a group of 40, 46 kids that they had um, they had a bicycle club and inside this bicycle club like um, they would go on weekends 
on uh, 80, 100 uh, kilometer uh, journey um, to a national park, to here or there in Quito. So these kids, they had the, they came back one day and they were looking at a map in, in their school in Ecuador. And they saw that the route that they took that weekend, if they continue in that route, it would arrive to the Amazon, Manaus, in Brazil. From Quito, there are 6,000 kilometers. And they look at the, all the maps, the topography, the elevations, they mark the route, and the things that they wanted to see on the way, where they wanted to stop, what they wanted to learn, what they wanted to see. So there were 46 kids, ages 13 to 18, that they put together a proposal uh, to do this trip that it would, they said it would take them four and a half months, that they needed $175,000, and they created a business plan. They look for sponsors, they make events, they did everything they needed to do to raise the $175,000. And they, so they, they, they went for four and a half months crossing uh, Ecuador, Colombia, Venezuela, into Brazil, all the way into the Amazon. These 46 kids, they make it all the way. Some adults, they were accompanying them all the way. Some of them, they were going for short periods. But they had all their camping ex equipment. They had, they stayed, they had an amazing, amazing time and adventures. And they were um, managing their own money. They were creating the route. And decide, they were deciding where they would go. So imagine for a kids between the ages of 13 to 18 that they set a goal of saying, I want to get there. This is how I'm going to do it. And that they plan everything and they make it happen and they get to their goal. What thing can it stop it in life? So they, they got the, mm. those kinds of experiences is what they could do when they have no boundaries on where they could get. Well, and, and I think what this does is when we're talking about, um, you know, for those, for those listening who might um, think that this is a load of, uh, a load of hippie, hippie stuff, uh, there, there's no better sort of case study how to navigate the modern world there right in the, the in the entrepreneurialism creativity adaptability um, these are these are the skills that I think the World Economic Forum even says are the, are the skills to, that we need in 2020 2025 exactly. um, and the trust when you give children that trust they tend to simply surprise you positively with what they can do with it and and yeah, it, it is amazing what they could do, but not only, many, many, many people, when you tell them that they 
he go to a school with no classroom, no, no teachers, no blackboard, no homework, no test. They think it is, you know, kind of a la-la land and that the kids do whatever they want and they are not doing anything and that they are sitting in the hammock all day. When it, it is completely the opposite. They have a lot of rules, a lot of structures, but there are a lot of, a lot of it is a container that the guides create and that they are always watching them and they have very intense reports. But what is um, what is important to acknowledge is that when they create these uh, these containers, the kids they learn from a very young age to administrate and manage their time, to know what what they want to do whenever they want to do it. They have this thing when they where they can really connect to their essence, really feel what they are feeling and what they want, what is calling them at every single moment. And they know that every single decision they make, it has a consequence. And so they, they really think very well before they make any decision, if it is what they want to do or not. And they, they are kids that when they are connected to that essence, to what they want and everything, it's, it's very challenging because they would not, probably they would not get a, a, a job, a shitty job that they don't like and that they don't enjoy. They, will, they are so connected that they said, this is what I want, this is not what I want. And at the end of the day, they tend to have a much happier and fulfilled life when you when you know what you want and how to get there and uh, what you want in life so it, it's um, one of the biggest concerns at the moment right is that with automation not only will people lose their jobs, but with, by losing their jobs, they'll lose their sense of purpose. So to me, I ask myself the question, well, how do we help people learn to know what, what gives them purpose in life? Uh, which is, you know, there's not a module in, in, in traditional school that is the finding purpose in life hour, you know? Um, but by learning that at a young age, and to and to and to get that and to create those circumstances, it, it seems like a, reci a, a recipe for for some sort of meaning, meaning and happiness in the long term. Yeah, that that's for for sure. And uh, it is a very um, it is a very fascinating way to see to see that you know they from a very young age when they get to certain moment, 12, 13, that they have a lot of the tools and uh, the kids can choose to start doing internships, different internships in things that is, that is cutting their attention. So for example, if someone wants to be a doctor, we will facilitate the way of them to go to a, a, and be with a doctor serving coffee, accompany them to to surgeries 
to see patients and see what really being a doctor is about. If they want to be a lawyer, if they want to have a restaurant, whatever it is that they, it's, it's, cutting the, it's calling their attention at the moment, they have the possibility to go out into the world and experience that way before they have to make any decision. You see, this is really what I want to study or not. Mm. So at the end of the day, nobody, like, they will know, okay, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to make this company. These are the tools I need to learn. And while they are in high school, many of them, they are learning the tools from university that they want. And when they finish, they say, you know, I don't feel that I need the university right now. And they go into doing that or they want to go and travel or they could do whatever they want based on their interests and motivation. And having that, you know, I, I finished high school. I was so lost. I didn't know who I was, what I wanted in life. And usually we just have this social pressure. We have to go to university and many times study a career that we don't even like. Some are lucky enough that they know that they like. But that thing that we like, you know, it can be changing and evolving over time. So if the only thing you, you know how to do is that thing that you train for and you don't know anything else, and suddenly you said, you know, I'm, I'm stuck with this. I, I already, I thought this is what I wanted to do in life, but now I, I'm a different person than I, when I was when I was 18. And I think when we get to 40, 50, 60 years old, if we still being the same person that we were when we were 18 or 20 years old or 20 something years old, I think it would be pretty sad if we didn't grow and make an evolution and change of our awareness and consciousness and what we want in life. Mm -hmm. So if you don't know how to learn how to learn and, and really have that connection and being true and sincere with ourselves, if, if uh, now, if today would be the, like if we would know what day will be the, what day and what time will be the, last day of our lives would i be doing what i'm doing right now and mm. some of us we might say yeah this is exactly what i would be doing some of us might say no this is not what i would be doing i'm not happy where i live i'm not happy the way my kids are are being taught i don't like that I'm working 18 hours a day and I never get to see my family. I'm, I hate my job, I hate my profession, I, but I do it because I don't have any other excuse or I'm in this relationship that I'm not happy, but we stay there because we feel we are insecure of ourselves and saying, oh no, we, I cannot change. I don't have any other option. And that's when we start feeling all that unhappiness, all that unfulfilledness, and and the only way to to stop it is with addictions. 
so it is you know when you are, mm. when you're a child and you you can connect to all those emotions all those feelings and that they are not blocked one thing in casasula is like every every kid that wants to cry doesn't matter if it's a boy or a girl they have a safe space to express those emotions and take all the all the tears out and every everything and after they took it out they are like okay now i'm i'm good to go Mm. I, I mean, I should perhaps give my own personal experience there, which is that when I, when I dropped Ivor off first day at Casasula, uh, I mean, if it, I will, I mean, I think most uh, parents don't forget the feeling of leaving their kids at the school date, uh, the school gate. Um, I, I will, I will really never forget it because a few things happened. One is that. I remember bringing him there and the guides coming to him and saying, Ivor, welcome to Casasula. You're going to have a wonderful time here. And then they said, choose a locker and then do what you want. Um, and two things struck me. First is the warmth, the, the genuine love they gave him. Uh, second was the autonomy that he, uh, they gave him. But what really surprised me I expected him to react really well to that autonomy. I, I expected him to love it. And then I just got this like lesson about what uh, I think mainly directive school does to you, which is first of all, he's now panicked about which locker because he wasn't told which locker. Then he sees one kid wearing shoes, one kid not wearing shoes. And he's like, should I wear shoes, John, or should I not wear shoes? So I'm trying to be a guide, but you know, it's up to you. It's, it's up to you. What, do you. what would you like to do? And he's just like, please just tell me shoes or no shoes. And then the same thing happens. They're doing a maths game. Some have the paper landscape, some have it portrait. And he's like, John, should I have the paper landscape or portrait? Uh, and I'm like, I don't know. You decide what would you like? But he's uh, at this point, he's almost panicked by the autonomy that he's been given. Um, and it is, uh, it was really difficult for him, but I mean, a week or two later, and he's now totally taking all that autonomy at home. We see him suddenly, uh, getting his own food from the, from the fridge, asking to try and cook all, all these things start emerging. What really shocked me in that first day is when I left the school, he cried so heavily, you know, one of those moments as a parent that, that is just painful you're you're empathizing so much that it's painful and i remember the attitude of the guide wasn't something i'd seen before because she looked after him i remember she had a hand on his shoulder was down at his eye level and really there caring for him but she didn't speak she didn't say you're going to be okay uh, or don't cry or uh, you'll see you'll see john soon she just let him figure his own emotions out. And sure enough, after a minute or two of crying, he let go of my hand and said, I love you, I'll see you later. And so I just got this masterclass in how to allow space for a child to, and a human, I think this is valuable for adults as well, to generate the emotional resilience necessary to navigate all sorts of problems in life. Uh, so, so it really is a, you know, a powerful thing to see children treated with that much respect.
I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it is same. It is exactly that. And how how can we ask it that they respect us or they respect the society or the authority or anything if we don't respect them, if we don't give them respect? So it is uh, kids are very respected all the way, and they mm. it is part of when they feel that respect or anything they they give it back naturally. Mm, of course, the and the ironies are so clear that we we as adults we're supposed to live in democracies, but we're brought up in autocracies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There is there are so many ironies. Uh, I think where I'd like to take this now is I think we've really explored um, sort of some of the the problems to be solved. My assumption is that some listeners might be might be listening to some of the tools and approaches that we've described and either find them interesting or find them questionable. But I think what doesn't always come through is the amount of theory and research that backs up um, the way Sula is designed. Could you, could you walk us through some of the ways in which it's designed and some of the either models or research or theories that sort of back yeah, that up sure. a little bit? Um, so the way it is designed is that, um, as I said, we have two seedlings, seedling one and seedling two, semillero uno and semillero dos. And the seedling one, they are kids from three years old to six, year, six years old. Um, in these environments, they have all the, the tools based on the, the development of, of uh, the child on that age. And you have the interaction of a six-year-old with a three-year-old when they are seeing what the elders are doing and, and the, the older kids, they love to um, teach the younger kids whatever they know, how to accompany them. So this multi-age approach is a very interesting uh, concept. Um, and you could see that it benefits both both the the younger and the older because when for them to teach something to the younger kids is mastering it's really mastering uh, a concept that they are learning that they are developing so for them to be able to teach it is is really understanding it and be able to put it into practice and and feeling okay, this this is what something I know how to do, and I'm helping this younger kid knowing and how to as well give give back and feel useful uh, with, and that our knowledge it has a a purpose. So everything around uh, the pedagogy is a. Uh, they they took the best out of many different models. They took uh, many things from Montessori. They took some things from uh, Waldorf. They took some things from Reggio Emilia. They took things, uh, fr uh, concepts from Piaget, uh, from John Holt, from um, Pestalozzi, from 
the latest research in brain and childhood development. So they took all these different um, pedagogies and approach and they took the best out of each one and combined it into environments. Pretty much it's, a, it's, it's called a democratic education where kids can learn their own curriculum based on their, their true needs. But when, when you have a true democracy and, and not have the directiveness uh, hidden or the secret agenda, where the kids can really decide at every moment what, what they really want to do and, and how, how they want to do it. Mm, so I, I should add that seedling one and seedling two, the crossover age there is about six years old. And that seedling one typically is children who that should mirror stage two of Piaget, if I'm right, which is where, where children learn from role play. Exactly. Is that correct? But can you tell us a little bit more? We'll go into maybe the second uh, set of students, which are in the other side of the school. So they're, they're in stages three or four. First, this, this stage two group, because of that developmental stage where they typically learn most from role play, they learn concepts like parenthood through role play. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the design choices uh, in Simiero One, why it is the way it is? Um, because I, I think it's interesting to know the implications of that developmental stage on the learning so environment. Yeah, they, they have a... Um they have a lot of uh, they learn a lot about the uh, things that they touch and they see so there is a lot of uh, uh, materials that they can play with sand with water with uh, with role playing they have uh, an area where they can be um, they have the doctor's office they have an area uh, where they can um, they have a, a corner where they have a lot of different books and they, they could read and every day there is uh, offerings throughout the day like storytelling and projects that they work on and they have a, a kitchen where everything in the kitchen is real except the oven but since three years old these kids they get real real knives and real real kitchen utensils I know I was shocked the first time I went uh, have you ever had any accidents out of interest? we never had any accidents and usually the accidents happen when you give kids these crappy plastic things that they try to mm. cut and they cannot cut so they do it so hard that they end up hurting themselves with that more than when you give them real same with it we have a, a wood shop and they have real hammers, real saws, real things that they cut. And we never ever had any accident with the kids because they learn how to use the tools and they are tools that they work and that they are real. And mm. if they see, oh, my dad is doing this, so I'm going to do it the same way. But suddenly it's something that doesn't work. They try trying in different ways until they hurt themselves. 
Mm. So it is um, it is lot lot of uh, how how many times like we had uh, the kids climbing a tree or something, and we are so scared of them falling off that we pass that insecurity to them, and they they fell off. But when you are when you give them security and and you can be accompany them. And as they climb the tree, you are there down in case something happens to be able to catch them or and give them confidence that they could do it. The results are are pretty different usually. Mm, yeah, and, and allowing that um I think it comes down to respect as well, knowing that they are capable. Um, so long as I think one of the things that struck me is so long as they're safe, they're capable. And obviously it goes without saying, we should, we should maybe point it out to listeners that whilst there are saws and knives, there are also uh, guides who have been doing this for decades um, around to make sure there's, there's no, nothing too crazy. For, for happening. sure. They're always there watching. And if they see that they're, anything dangerous a kid running with a knife or something they will say no of course so, so this stage um the first semillero there so they're in stage two they're using role play a lot um so, something i think is really interesting is how the older students can also go uh, and spend time with the younger students like you say one of the biggest benefits they have is that they're able to um take part in the uh, they're able to teach and because they're able to teach they're able to learn one of the others that struck me was described to me as a form of therapy which is that uh, older children who perhaps have missed out on some childhood experiences through for whatever reason because they're in didactic education because uh, things that happened at home to them are able to go and act those things out with the younger children right and that exactly. that that has an impact. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because it, it was described to me as having that experience would save you hundreds of pounds of therapy when you're 30 years old. For sure. It is uh, not, only, not only for the kids, it is uh, for the adults as well. Sometimes when we spend time in the environments and suddenly like you have the privilege to, to have that inner, inner child come to life, and saying you are free and you can do anything you want and nobody is judging you or they have the freedom kids at ages eight seven nine ten that they go back there and they start playing with the little ones and doing things and to heal any part of their childhood that wasn't that they had any trauma or anything like that and that they can go back in there and and it is it is very therapeutic and it is very um for brothers and sisters that they fight between each other um going back there and seeing where that came from and seeing that the love and respect between the older and the younger and vice versa it is a very therapeutic thing and it creates a lot of magic and change in the in the relationship in the interaction and it is a very 
very beautiful and unique experience to to have mm, i certainly think that you one of the things that we really learn because th th the traditional education system is so premised on individual grades and that kind of work that um the, the this kind of freer system i think allows introverts and extroverts to explore that side of themselves regardless and so you're you learn to socialize in lots of ways something that terrifies many adults that you you get to work through that and understand your relationship to others your relationship to yourself uh, i think that that saves a lot of a lot of future problems and i think that that role play uh, as from three to six year olds is a big part of it can you can you walk us through a little bit for the older students they're on a different side of the school yeah, well, and they're typically yeah, just, other uh, yeah in just to finish with the little ones they are environments yeah. there where they have a they start learning about numbers a pre-math they start learning how to add subtract throughout place they have a lot of games that they play and they start learning the letters and they have a shop right they have a shop they have a um, yeah mini market where they they start learning about money and how to buy the things on the shop and they one is the cashiers and gives the the exchange based on the prices and adds up and pass the credit card and they have all the the things where they can feel their like all sorts of life the things that they see mom and dad doing that they can reproduce and and get it done and at the same time they have a a corner where they collect clay from the river and then they come there and they they uh, create different things with clay. They create projects with uh, things that they collect from nature walks that they do. They, they spend a lot of time in nature. They have uh, ponies, uh, these little horses that they go and take care, they take care of them and they ride them. And the, their creativity and imagination, there is no limit. And going to the older kids, the older kids, they have a um, lot of stations based on their development and everything, getting all the tools on how to read, write, uh, learning about the body, the skeleton, the, all the organs, how they are interconnected, how they work with each other. They have a geography. They have a history, civics, they have a big library. They have a real kitchen that they can sign up and cook uh, different things. And this is kids from seven years old to 17. So as well with the same thing, they, they see the older kids doing things that they wanna know. And also the guides are constantly presenting them new materials and what they could do with that. So if it catches their attention at the moment, it's something that they, they do. But if, if any kid, for example, like it's working on something and he wants to be one week, one month, three months, the whole year working on something that is a project that he's doing or something, nobody's going to take it out and say, no, you have to stop now and 
you have to do uh, math and an hour later saying now you have to do geography and now you have to do this. It's like it's all uh, based on their motivation. And the reports that they get, the kids, the parents, they get, we, we get a report, a very profound, um, with a very profound learning um, that, you know, like uh, they very, they uh, give an example of all the areas of their lives, not only not only math, science, and this, like how they are doing uh, in social skills, how they are doing their uh, cognitive, how they are doing with um, uh, social, um, with uh, um, public speaking, with uh, different, different things that they are doing, and they make an analogy of based on a traditional school as well. They give a list of all the things that the curriculum requires. For example, like uh, if you are eight years old, uh, you should know how to add and subtract in math. And they compare that to your kid in Sula without putting any, um, any grade, but saying if, they already master that or if they are developing or if it, that it didn't cut their attention yet. But what usually happens is that all the requirements for their age, they usually have them done and way more advanced than any, than any of the traditional schools when you compare. Well, just there, I think that this is a really key point because a lot of, um, parents will be wondering i mean i literally hear this all the time you know like um, well how do you teach them to read how do you teach them to write how do you teach them math we can go into some of the methods in a minute but i think something that stood out for me was a story i heard when i was at Casasuda. maybe you can shed more detail on it and it was that um because of these stages of development stage three which is around seven to ten years old uh children learn typically through the concrete so they they you know, the theory from Piaget is that they don't yet understand abstract notions, including text or numbers, but they do understand um, how to learn through their fingers and their hands. Um, and it's only in stage four, around 10 years old, that they then do develop the ability to learn numbers and text. I'm sharing this bit of uh, like theoretical context because um, once, t tell me if, if I'm right or not here, but one trend I've heard is that children who aren't taught to read, for instance, um, won't learn until around 10 years old, where they'll suddenly come back home um, from school, uh, or from Sula as an example of that kind of school, um, able to learn. And the, the parents are like, well, where did you learn that? And they'll say, oh, you know, my friend Tommy taught me last week. And it's because they're suddenly at an age where they're able to learn. So it feels like comparisons with the formal school system in a way don't work because it could simply be that they're not reading because five-year-olds are, are forced to read in schools now. And they learn at 10, which is five years too late, but they learn in two weeks and they learn to love it for a lifetime. 
so so it feels like that that natural rhythm is is just so different for different children in different developmental stages it is um it it is uh, in most in most of the cases kids learn to read uh, before before that but there are some cases that yeah they learn at 10 11 12 how to read and write um I, I think right now, like in older, my son that is ne nine, he's the only kid that doesn't read and write uh, yet. And my wife and I, we just, you know, we are not worried at all um, about it. We know that we see him. Uh, developing so many other aspects that we have the confidence that whenever he's ready um, he will start reading and writing uh, without any problem and usually when you have kids that are not forced to read and write they when they do it and they are ready they they never stop they started it's something that it's really, um, they start getting book and after book and after book and they, they read everything they want to read um, because they were not forced and saying you have to do it. It's something that it's on their own motivation. So it is a little bit, you know, like I had, a, when my son was a, two, two years old, um, he, he had a friend that was five years old and he wasn't speaking because he had a, he had a, a, a health, health issue. And, and I, I was afraid, what happens if my son never speaks? And I remember sharing that to my wife and she would laugh at me and it's like, do you really think like he would not be able to speak and a few months later he was speaking perfectly well and very fluent but it's mostly like all the fears of our parents oh no if they don't walk at 11 months maybe they never walk or if they don't speak at two years old they would never speak if they don't read by this age they never speak but you know like it's all like all these fears of saying if they don't go to the best school that you know they didn't give them a they give them homework every day and if they don't come miserable from school they will be homeless and they will never have a job <laughs> and yeah it's typically some sort of projection um from an adult we should perhaps add that illiteracy we're not saying illiteracy isn't a thing uh, it exists and perhaps different cultures and societies um, experience it in different ways. I think it's worth noting that, you know, if I think uh, if I think of, of of Noah, for instance, he's just so surrounded by literature through having you as parents and and growing up the way he's growing up that it it would it would be almost virtually impossible for him to not learn to read because there are so many cues around him. You know, the the twenty first century is is filled with you know, if he wants to play with the phone, 
he's starting to figure out what it's saying on the screen uh, and he's and he's able to to learn that he, uh, himself right yeah 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 and he you know when i go on walks with him through nature it's it's like he gives me he gives me lectures every single time about the animals that he sees and birds the name of the birds and the name of the trees and what they are used for and he and he could do that in english and spanish but he never had even one 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 class of english he never had an english no. class to learn how to speak but you go around with him and he tells you oh this is a, a mahogany and the wood like right. you take the bark you can make this with it and like all these things that it's it's so fascinating to see what connection he has with his surrounding and with everything like around and that and that word connection is important i think there's no accident that you that permaculture was one of the things that triggered you getting into this stuff because uh, you're not learning modular here. You're not learning in a linear basis. You're, you're, you're learning to think in systems, albeit you're never taught to think in systems. You just naturally start thinking in systems when the silos between subjects are broken down. I remember one day at the school, actually, Ivor, uh, I came to pick him up and he showed me how termites were nesting and how ants were building their farms. Uh, and, and he'd spent all day studying the ants, you know? Um, so, so, so we're learning. It, it's worth noting that there is a learning happening accidentally, uh, in a way, that is about the way in which cis complex systems interact uh, that you just don't get from sitting in a classroom. For sure. I mean, I, I, I would describe them like these kids, they learn as a small scientist that they experiment, they, they go back, they look at the results and they go back to it again and they, until they can create their own idea around it and how the things work and why they work that way. Mm. That is very different than saying, you know, like this is, this is like this because it is and because I say so. Like the way... Yeah, yeah the, world, the world's their laboratory, right? Yeah. Yeah, they have the world's laboratory and they have all these prepared environments with hundreds and hundreds of materials that they can explore and play with. And if they see that they are so fascinated by a subject and they don't have more information and they want it, like the, the adults, they, the guides, they create new materials and new materials and new materials until their needs are satisfied and when they reach to certain age as part of this uh, all these different uh, development and things techniques is like you know they they believe based on neuroscience scientist studies like that the brain development that it's not good to have uh, screens, phones, uh, computers, tablets, until that they are certain age and that they develop certain things that is very important for their, their brain evolution, their creativity and everything around. So um, 
when they get to ages uh, 12, 13, 14, they start having an introduction to screens. Uh, we have 3D printers. Right now we have three, 3D printers that the kids can use and they can create um, real objects that they design and that they want to make. And so the, the possibilities that they have are endless based on their, uh, when the brain is completely ready to receive all the information and process it and understand it and know what to do with it. Mm. Yeah, because, I mean, this isn't about withdrawing technology for a child because technology is bad. It's introducing it at the moment where they're ready to really use it and flourish with it uh, without being harmed by, by that. Um, but the, the principles that make you able to code, as an example, are learned before. So if I think of um, one, one thing in, in this kind of system as a tiny example, but I think it's quite representative, is using a Rubik's Cube. The way to solve a Rubik's Cube is, is through a series of algorithms. Um, so you're learning, you don't know that you're learning about algorithms, but you're learning about algorithms long before you code an algorithm. But come 13, when it's time to code an algorithm, you actually, your brain has actually understood the basic structure. For sure. Uh, right now, now oh, not, not only that. I mean, they have a they have a robot that it's called uh, Kibo, uh, for mm. the smaller the smaller kids. And this this robot is like a scanner, and then you have coding instructions uh, in blocks made out of wood. And with this uh, robot, you can scan it and make all the coding of a sequence. And you can make the robot dance, turn the lights on, uh, have sensors of distance. And they can, the things that they can create are endless. And they have a, a platform where they can make art and make the robot to dance and play sounds and do all these things with uh, wood blocks. Mm. Right. And the, the genius of that is that, of course, you're learning about technology, um, but at that age when abstract notions like screens are not only abstract, but, but sometimes dangerous or, or certainly neurologically dangerous, um, you're still learning technology, but through the lens of a child that's in the developmental stage that requires the concrete and the physical. Exactly. Uh, so I mean, um, so I'm I'm aware of uh, of time and and not taking too much of yours. I'm I'm thinking a way to wind down this like what I think has been a really generative conversation. Of course, uh, our listeners will know that they are that I'm I'm there's an echo chamber here uh, because because uh, this is something I believe in so passionately and that that we've we've spent a lot of time together. I want to. I want to start landing us down and the way I think I want to do that is by asking you to tell me two things. One is a bit more about where next for, for Casasula, for your education mission. Um, and the other is to ask you maybe like a, about a theory of change. Like what, what do you think is needed to, to create, create change in education? I'll, I'll let you decide quite what that means but but can you tell us a bit about that so your your mission sure. um, next and that so right now i'm working on how to make sula um, 
sustainable over time, meaning how we can uh, and how to be able to expand that into other uh, parts of the world. So pretty much uh, in order to make it right now, we have, I said, about 60 kids. We are economically um, in a good position with that amount of kids, but some kids are growing, some families, they come here for a period of time to experience it and then they go back to whatever they came from. And we have a bunch of much, there are much more families that they want to come. And Ecovia, that is a community close by, we are in a, very, in a rural area and there are not a lot of options for housing. So in order to make it more um, sustainable and be able to give the opportunity to more families to come and experience Sula, right now there are families that they want to stay and there are no houses for them to rent or to buy or, or anything. So right now I'm working on creating um, more communities around Casa Sula so more families can come and rent or live buy a lot and and make this their home to be around this school and as well we are creating uh, with that we are creating a housing for people to come short terms um, short and long terms and be able to learn from uh, these three amazing people from Ecuador that they have all this knowledge and experience. Um, we are putting together uh, a program with uh, two amazing people from Ecuador, uh, from Brazil, that they are, they are creating this program with uh, um, the three Ecuadorians and it's a, a program on how to implement uh, this kind of education in your home, in your communities, and how to create schools uh, with the same concept. So we, we are working on that, how we can reproduce it and expand it worldwide. And so it's a, it's a working, working process with that. And um, with the, the opportunity of suddenly having much more families interest in this kind of education also will give them the, the financial opportunity of Sula to, to grow and expand and have all the time uh, more buildings, more areas, more materials and, and more options for the kids to keep expanding the, their horizons. Mm. For, for listeners who are inspired by that, I, I, I'm taking what you've just said there as an almost a call out um, for people who want to be involved. How, how could people get involved if they're listening to this podcast and they're, they're called to somehow? Uh, people could get involved by coming and experiencing it here for a few months, for a semester, for a year, for a few years um, with their families. People could get involved by coming and, 
and get trained, have a family experience on how to implement this kind of education at home with homeschooling or unschooling, giving you, getting all the tools on how you can reproduce this kind of education in, in your house by people that have been doing it this for decades. And they have 30 plus years of experience in this kind of education and, and graduated hundreds and hundreds of kids over the years. And then uh, is the best place for people to find that on the on casasula.com is that right? Uh, yeah, I don't think it is uh, yet on the it's it, it's a program that we are developing. It's not yet on the website, but they can contact through casasula.com that is the website and once we have it ready we can send them the information. And wonderful yeah it's a uh, and if they want more information about the future ecovias they can go to laicovia.com and there is a link there for future development information and we can keep you posted whenever we have the master plan and and more solid information wonderful and the um the spirit, I think we've kind of done this uh, organically. The spirit of the podcast is, uh, is, to offer, is to offer some potential solutions and opportunities um, in the face of complex problems with education being perhaps the most complex in that it's, it, there's not really a conversation that you can have where the solution doesn't end up somehow involving education. Um, but I'd love to get really tangible. Would you be able to offer, if you had like one piece of advice to give to people, this might be parents, um, maybe educators, I don't know. Um, if you had one piece of advice based on your experience um, building Casasuda, seeing so many children grow in a, in a different environment, what would that piece of advice be? Uh, my, my advice is to follow, follow their intuition, not be afraid of, of a, of doing things in a different different way there are different ways to a, and we know we know what kind of results we got with the traditional education and i think a, there is a lot of room for change and we need more innovation and we need more a, exploration with awareness yeah so to, so uh, to to explore alternatives and and trust yourself perhaps trust to trust the children as well in the case of younger kids that's, that they've they've got the answers that's for to. sure um and fi finally something i um i'm asking all my guests is if you were to introduce uh somebody you know a new guest to the podcast so that uh so that i can continue sharing the uh, these amazing conversations with people. Uh, who, who could you suggest to me as a guest? Um, what depending? They on, need to be English speaking, Marcelo, sure. or French. Dep depending on the what, what would be your your ideal subject, or it doesn't 
Well, it doesn't really matter. Let's stick to education, perhaps, since that's where where this conversation's been focused more. Have you got Have you got someone who can um, sure, who can I mean, enlighten? I, I I think it would be very interesting to talk to Karina Silverman. She's a neighbor mm -hmm. here in Nicovia, and she's very involved with education and very interesting concepts and things to say about it. Wonderful. All right, I'll I'll, I will I'll send expect you, an intro. I will send you her contact i will i will make the introduction wonderful thanks so much um i, I feel like we've uh, i've got this this odd feeling that we've covered so much and yet covered so uh little uh, not only of the theory and and reasoning behind all of these design decisions when it comes to alternative education but also all of the the practical implementations themselves. So, so may, maybe we'll uh, we'll do this again sometime. But I think I hope our listeners have found it. It's a very it is a very complex subject, and there is so much into it. That, but if any people hearing this podcast, they have any spark or any anything waking up, I'm sure they could do more research and start doing their their homework as well. Have you got a, a book or anything like that to recommend for people to go and uh, quench their thirst when it comes to educational theory and progress? Um, I, there, there is one, one book that I'm reading right now um, that, but I, I think it's only in Spanish and it's written by one of the guides in Sula from Esperanza. Mm. He wrote this this book that is called The Spark on Their Eyes. The, the, that would be the translation. And it is exactly when you see these sparks on the kids' eyes and then something cut their attention, that it is, it is when the magic is, is created. And super interesting on her, her sharing her experiences and Hopefully soon it will be translated and, but the people reading Spanish is called El... Esperanza Chacon, that's right? Yeah. Mm, right, amazing. I can't, I'll either have to brush up on my Spanish or wait for the translation, but um, Esperanza is a wise and wonderful woman that I appreciate a lot. Marcelo, thanks so much for this um, awesome conversation. It's been really nice. Uh, reconnecting with you uh, and having you on the podcast so thanks for inspiring no doubt a lot of people my pleasure my friend and hope uh, hope people enjoy it all right take care thanks bye bye so i hope you enjoyed my conversation with marcelo again if you want to support the podcast please just subscribe on your app so it could be on itunes on Stitcher, Overcast, or SoundCloud. Um, but please subscribe so that you can receive future uh, episodes of the podcast. And also, as ever, I'd love your feedback, comments, suggestions, um, or whatever. So that's john at flux.am, J-O-N at flux, F-L-U-X dot A-M. And more information about the podcast uh, and my newsletter, you can get on John Barnes, J-O-N-B-A-R-N-E-S dot me. Have a wonderful day. Thanks.